0: listening to the podcast of Eucharist Church in San Francisco, a community of faith seeking to live all of life in reference to Christ. Join us now for this week's message. Growing up as a kid, my dad attempted to instill in me and my brothers the love of birding. Are you familiar with this term, birding? Birding is a hobby uh, in which people observe and identify as many different species of birds in their natural habitat as possible. So it's not like you go to the zoo and get to mark them off. but like, You've got to see them in the wild. Uh, there are about 10,000 different species of birds in the world. And serious birders will travel to obscure places uh, and spend a lot of money getting there just to track down and identify even one particular bird. So they can add it to their lifelong list. Uh, This is uh, apparently a more widespread hobby than I realized actually. Uh, I was looking at Wikipedia and it was talking about how much money is spent every year on birding. It was a large sum of money. And and then it was talking about how uh, there's like public records of people who have the most birds. And there are 11 people in the history of humanity who have observed over 9,000 different species of birds. Um, the, the most serious birder has over 9,600 of the a little more than 10,000 birds that there are, which is a pretty significant achievement. So these are the most serious birders of all time. Now, my dad is not like those people. Um, he has done a little bit of traveling, actually, to see some birds. Uh, but compared to these serious birders, he's what you consider a mild enthusiast. Uh, he probably has about 400 species on his list, which I think is still pretty good. Anyway, in order to get me and my brothers into bird watching, my dad tried to motivate us with rewards. So he told us that if we could identify 10 different bird species, that he would buy us our own bird book. Um, And then if we got 30 species, that we would get, uh, we got promised binoculars. And if we got 50 birds on our list, then we'd get a telescope. Um, So as you might guess, for a 10-year-old, this is pretty motivating. Like what 10-year-old doesn't want his own pair of binoculars, So I got about 30 and then I think I quit birding at that point. (laughs) As it turns out, though, identifying birds is not as easy as you might think. Uh, The first five to ten species are pretty easy, like the American Robin who doesn't know what that is. You know, you can see that in your yard. uh, But the challenge is that you have to get a pretty good look at a bird to match its coloration and its patterns and its behaviors with the descriptions in the bird book. And then you have to make sure that the bird that you think you're seeing is actually living in the region that it says the, you know, it actually lives in. Sometimes you have to use a bird's behavior or even you have to use its, its song to discover if it's the right bird. But the most confusing thing to me of all as a kid was that I would come across a bird that didn't quite match any of the colors or patterns that were in my bird book. And I would see the bird, I would note its behavior, I would note its size and its distinctive markings, but then I'd find myself stumped. Sometimes I'd even convince myself that maybe I had just discovered a brand new species of bird, actually. (laughs) Nearly always, uh, the issue, as my dad would inevitably help me realize, was that I was observing an immature bird. It turns out that birds can change in appearance to a fairly radical degree over the course of the first few years of their lives. Uh, I have an example of a bird. Actually, these are some bird watchers here. Uh, we'll skip over that. Okay, there's the bird. Go back up one. Um, this bird, uh, do you know what kind of bird this is? Yeah. Now you do because you saw it in the next slide. Yeah. Um, you're fired, Peter. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, it's a bald eagle. <laughs> no, come back, come back. Please come back. Yes. Um, it's an immature bald eagle, though. So look at the next slide down here, uh, the one below that one, actually. Um, there they are side by side. So it's, it doesn't have the yellow beak yet. It doesn't have the distinctive white head or the white uh, tail feathers. And uh, the bald eagle actually doesn't mature to look like a bald eagle until four to five years. And so oftentimes in the wild, a, this bird is easily confused with the golden eagle or an osprey or some other kind of bird. But the issue is simply that the eagle isn't yet mature. It doesn't have the telltale signs of being a bald eagle. And so at times, amateur birders like myself can find it difficult to recognize the bird for what it is simply because it hasn't yet grown into full maturity. Now, I bring up this uh, rather random example because it occurs to me that it could provide an interesting parallel with what St. Paul is addressing in the scripture reading that we heard heard, read today from Colossians chapter 1. Now, Paul doesn't use the word maturity anywhere in this passage, but it seems to me and to some of the commentators I was reading that he has a goal of clarifying what Christian maturity looks like. He's keen to help his readers identify some key markers of mature Christian faith. And so the question I want us to reflect on today is what does a mature Christian look like? What does a mature Christian look like? It seems to me that this is a vital question. We live right now in a time in which the term Christian is applied quite loosely and broadly and with wide ranging meaning. But the truth of the matter is that many of us, many of us lack a clear picture in our mind as to what a truly mature Christian is supposed to actually look like. Part of the challenge with talking about maturity is that it's easy to confuse a whole host of other things for maturity or to make lots of false correlations. So, for example, unlike bald eagles, there is no guarantee that just because you grow older each year that you will be any more mature as a Christian. There's no guaranteed correlation between the two. And so we should be careful never to conflate age with maturity. Another error that we make is mistaking activity for maturity. Just because a person does a lot around the church or holds a bunch of offices or or titles doesn't guarantee that he or she is mature. I can think of one or two examples in churches I've been in in the the past uh, where a person did a lot for the church, but nobody would have mistaken that person for being a mature Christian. They were just a busybody. Maturity does not directly correlate with activity. The same could be said of head knowledge. There are plenty of people who have advanced degrees in theology who might know a lot about the Bible or about Christian theology, but who nonetheless are immature Christians or not even Christians at all in some cases. Now, this may sound uh, I may risk sounding a bit harsh with what I'm saying here. But when I attended seminary, I was startled with how little maturity I discovered around me and my colleagues. And I should say that I include myself and that uh, group as well. Twelve years ago, I had a master's of divinity in hand, but I would dare say that it would be a mistake to apply the term mature Christian to me. Mere head knowledge does not equate to Christian maturity. Reading a lot of books does not make you a mature Christian. What about titles? Does a position or a title guarantee that a person has spiritual maturity? The gospel reading today highlights this fallacy. Jesus tells the now famous story about a man beaten by robbers and left for dead beside the road on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then in his story, he tells about two types of religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, people who would have widely been assumed by Jesus's audience to embody spiritual maturity. But in the story, both the priest and the Levite separately encounter the man and then proceed to ignore him and walk away away from him in his moment of need. As Jesus describes in the story, they literally passed by on the other side of the road so as to not be bothered by the man, perhaps in order to avoid ritual contamination by this man that would prevent them from fulfilling their religious duties in the temple or something. It was another person. It was an untrained layman, a despised half-breed Samaritan who was an outsider to the fullness of God's revelation to the Jewish people. It was this man who embodied the vision of spiritual maturity in Jesus' story. The story is intended to tell, to tell us that this man, this Samaritan, expressed more spiritual maturity than the formally trained, title-bearing, robe-wearing priest and Levite. This echoes what we see across the stories of the Gospels, where Jesus is consistently critical of spiritual leaders of his time. It seems clear that Jesus saw no correlation whatsoever between holding a religious office and spiritual maturity. And the same is still true today, isn't it? We can't be sure just because someone is called pastor or father or deacon or catechist or even bishop or spiritual director or what have you, that this person is actually spiritually mature. A title does not guarantee spiritual maturity. If you've been around a church, you may have seen any number of things uh, unofficially correlated with maturity, whether it's a certain kind of moralistic rigidity or the avoidance of certain types of sin or public, uh, the public practice of certain disciplines. But I think it's important to note that none, of these, that none of these are how Paul thinks about maturity when he offers Thanksgiving for the report of the growth and maturity of the believers in Colossae in his letter to the Colossians. I want you to listen again to what he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. You're welcome to follow along in the scriptures if you'd like to. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. He says this. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There it is. Paul's famous trio. Faith, hope. And love. These, as far as Paul is concerned, form the framework or the outline of whatever is to be said about Christian maturity. In other words, you cannot talk about Christian maturity without coming back to these three, faith, hope, and love. And when Paul talks about faith, he's referring not merely to an intellectual assent to some ideas or some doctrines. He's describing the total surrender of your life to Christ. The entrusting of your whole identity to Christ. No hedging, no asterisks. To have faith in Christ is to go all in and to bet the farm completely on Him. That's what He means by faith. When Paul speaks of hope, He's not referring merely to optimism, not to some extrapolated version of a future derived from today's circumstances. He is referring to a way of life that is totally dependent on a future that is promised to us in Christ. A future that may in fact appear to be a complete contradiction to the present trajectories evidenced by today's data. Hope is not to be mistaken for optimism. They're not the same. Hope is basing your life on the promises of God in Christ. Hope is about living from a secure future, which changes entirely the way that we think about And act in the present. And when Paul refers to love, he has in mind not primarily a feeling, not primarily the sensation of warmth in your heart, but a commitment to seek the good of others. Not merely those with whom we have a natural affinity, but all people. Even enemies, as Jesus tells us, even strangers like the man beside the road who needed to be helped by the good Samaritan. But above all, Paul has in mind that we would seek the good of our brothers and sisters in the family of faith. After all, if you can't love your brother, as John says, you you shouldn't say you love God. You can't see. Jesus says in the gospel of John, chapter 13, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples. What? What? if you love one another, right? If you love one another. Over and over again in the scriptures, we see that love, that love is the primary evidence of maturity. But this love is not something that we concoct on our own. Love is the fruit of an underlying maturity. And maturity itself must never be seen as a kind of achievement of our own, as though it's something we can point to as an accomplishment, Maturity is simply what results from a life spent abiding in Christ. Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's a picture of maturity, bearing fruit. Trees don't bear fruit until they're mature. Plants don't bear fruit until they're mature. But he says... Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. It's interesting because we often associate maturity in a general human context with independence from others. Or with the ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and stand on your own two feet. That's how most people would define maturity in our culture. Children are considered mature adults when they can move out and take care of themselves and pay for their life. But for Paul and for the whole New Testament, maturity looks very different. According to verse 11 in Colossians chapter 1, Paul associates maturity with relying on God's strength. Maturity is about relying on God's strength. He says this, May you, and he's speaking to the church in in Colossae and to us by extension, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. Maturity, as Paul understands it, is not about becoming a powerhouse of your own strength. Maturity is the fruit of a long-term posture of total dependence on God. Let me say that again in a slightly different way. Christian maturity is about learning to rely on God. The the Proverbs famously says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Maturity never comes by looking to ourselves or by measuring ourselves or by evaluating ourselves or, worst of all, by comparing ourselves with others. Maturity is actually correlated to a kind of self-forgetfulness. In the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the key differences between the priest and Levi on the one hand and the Samaritan on the other is that the Samaritan is rather unself-conscious. There's no calculation going on. There's no attempt to appear a certain way before others. There's no self-concern. He's just moved by pity, as the text says. He's moved by pity, and he acts with love and kindness toward The beaten, dying stranger. And if you remember, the whole context of Jesus telling the story was a man who was thinking about himself. You remember? The lawyer comes to Jesus. The expert in the law comes to Jesus. And he asks, what must I I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? The man is thinking about himself. He's fixated on himself. It's interesting because when he dialogues with Jesus, he has the right theological answers, according to Jesus. He's got it right, but he's not spiritually mature. Again, knowing the right answer does not correlate to spiritual maturity. Total reliance on God is the basis of Christian maturity. This is what we see in Jesus himself. He says in John chapter 5 and verse 19, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Paul talks in Colossians 1 about leading a life, quote, worthy of the Lord. And this is exactly what he's talking about. A life worthy of the Lord is a life spent abiding in the Father. Because that's what Jesus did. And it's from this place of security that in the words of Paul in Colossians 1, verse 11, quote, You may be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Let me say that again. You may be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. You see, it's only when we're truly abiding in Christ that we can patiently endure whatever life throws at us while maintaining a spirit of thanksgiving. If I'm honest with myself and with you, I'm a long ways from that. I get thrown off by the smallest things. A negative conversation, somebody questioning my motives about something I've done, traffic and I'm gonna be late to an appointment. These are small things these are small things, but I'm embarrassed to admit that they have the power to totally upend my day. I'm far from enduring everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That's Paul's picture of maturity right there. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father, enduring all things with patience. The truth is that my daily existence, and I don't know if you resonate with this for yourself, my daily existence is far too high strung, too fragile, And what this points to is how much of my life is spent living from my own strength. Trying to strain to achieve something on my own. Grasping and trying to secure my own present and future circumstances. And if I'm to take what Paul is saying in this passage seriously, these moments are evidence of my immaturity. Paul wants to remind us, what Paul wants to remind us about is the tremendous Underlying security that we have been offered in Christ They've all been offered it He wants to remind us that all of the big stuff Has already been handled by God And so by implication he can handle the small stuff in our lives if we'll let him Listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians 1:12 through 14 he, The father he says has quote enabled you to To share in the inheritance of the saints. He's enabled you. He's made it possible for you to have an inheritance. And then he goes on to say, he has rescued us from the power of darkness. He's done that. He's rescued us. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he has offered us redemption. That's being purchased out of slavery. He has bought us out of slavery. And he's offered us the forgiveness of sins. He's enabled you to share in the inheritance. He's rescued you from the power of darkness. He's transferred you into the kingdom of his son. And he's offered you redemption and forgiveness of sins. these These are the giant things. These are the big things, right? It seems that what Paul is saying is that it's only when we can begin to wrap our hearts and our minds around all that God has secured for us. That we can truly begin to live with joy and thanksgiving no matter what we face. This is the picture of Christian maturity. And this is our invitation. So, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to move toward this kind of maturity, I need to be reminded on a regular basis about how God has already handled all of the big stuff in my life. I need to be reminded about the unshakable hope that is held out to me in Christ. I need to be reminded about the trustworthiness of God and his unceasing love for me. Because it's when I lose that script that I fall back into my well worn patterns of immaturity. One of the reasons we gather together on Sundays here is to be reminded about who God is, about what He has done for us in Christ. So today, I actually want to have you listen really attentively to the Creed. The Creed, you know, is the outline of what God has done. It just tells you He's taking care of these major things, He's got it all in His hands. And then when we come to the point where we receive communion, I want you to receive in your hands the tangible reminder of the security that you have in Christ. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So whatever you're facing in your life, it fits within that narrative. And you can have peace, and you can have patience, and you can joyfully give thanks to the Father and all those things. May God Almighty draw each of us into a place of joyful thanksgiving in his presence today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist Podcast. For more information, you can visit our website at eucharistsf.org.